I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, where we're looking at Jesus in depth. And um, the reason we're looking at Jesus in depth is that there are a number of perspectives about Christ that are really manifold in our world. Everybody has an opinion, but we want to see the real deal. We want to interact with the real deal as Jesus as he actually is in Scripture and in history. And uh, today we're going to kind of look at Jesus after a series of conflicts he's had with the religious leaders of the time about grace and truth in the prior chapter. And we're going to see how people still struggle to understand who Jesus is, uh, especially in what's revealed about what they want from him. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word from Mark chapter 3. Starting in verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many. So that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach." And have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip. And Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And Simon, the Canaanian. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he, they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know what the fastest growing religion in the world is? It isn't Islam. And it is not Christianity. According to David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, they suggest that self-worship is quickly becoming the fastest-growing way of life in the Western world. Uh, Kinnaman and Lyons uh, uh, have data that says 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life, enjoying yourself. Furthermore, 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. Add to that, 91% say that in order to find yourself, you must look within yourself. Now, as Christians, we would say the pursuit of joy and enjoying things, of course, is a part of our life together and living in the gifts of this world, but it is not the highest goal. Uh, That's a far cry from the old catechism question, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
Of course, making the self center, which is what these things really get to, is frankly nothing new considering Adam and Eve. Uh, Self-interest has always been an issue for people like us. But you know, the more you live life and the more you act in self-interest, the more you know it it doesn't end well, typically. Thaddeus Williams uh, says that making the self the center in the end game usually doesn't go well. Uh, When we try to be our own sources of satisfaction, Williams says, we become miserable wrecks. I'm like, yeah, that's right. But still, we keep on doing it. Well, self-interest comes into play not only in our lives, more than we realize, but even back in Jesus' day among the people that interacted with him. And, and that's precisely what we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 3 when we look at a series of people who interact with Jesus. Time and time again, as people interact with him, they misunderstand who Jesus was and what he was about because of their own self-interest. And that was true not only with the religious leaders we saw last week in Mark chapter 2, but it shows up in a sequence of events with various and sundry people here in chapter 3 where we're going to look. So the one thing that's going to show up as we pay attention to this is this. Uh, People's self-interest and what they think about Jesus in particular shows up in what they want from Jesus. So that begs the question for the day, What do people want from Jesus? But we also need to come back around eventually and ask the question, what does Jesus want from us? So let's dive in and see what the crowds, the demons, and even Jesus' own family want from him starting in verse 7. Look at that with me. Jesus withdrew uh, with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now, let's remember real quick, Jesus' ministry has been ramping up the last few chapters. He's been preaching. He's been healing people. The word has spread fast about him to all kinds of areas, not only among the Jews, but well beyond the Jewish peoples. His influence was popping up. Facebook likes were going crazy at this point. Twitter was buzzing. TikTok videos about Jesus were showing him at work. And the crowds were coming in masses. They were great crowds, as the text says. Some estimates are that Jesus was drawing tens of thousands of people. And even in a few chapters, we're going to see Jesus feed 5,000 men. And the way the Greek describes that in that text, it does not include women and children. Indeed, our text says that such huge crowds gathered around him that when they got close, they almost crushed him to death in the process. So people are coming around from everywhere in these regional locations, which is noted in our text. And you would, again, expect the Jews to come from Judea, uh, Jerusalem, and Galilee, but the shocker is that people are coming from Edomia. That's Edom, for those of you who are Bible scholars, formerly Edom. They're coming from Tyre and Sidon and people beyond the Jordan. They're coming from the south, the north, and the east to see Jesus. And here's what's so radical about that. Uh, it, it, this, Jesus is becoming uh, such a big deal, even among the Gentiles, it'd be a little bit like a Clemson fan showing up to see South Carolina teams. It'd be like Chapel Hill fans showing up to pull for Duke teams. You're like, this is not, this just doesn't happen. 
So when Mark lists these locations, he is doing something. He's actually giving us a clue to what Jesus was about. You see, Jesus would go on to visit all of these places except Edomia. And that's because Jesus was focused like a laser beam on a mission, on a rescue mission of people. He wanted to rescue people out of lostness and the potential of God's wrath to safety with him in grace. He came to seek and save the lost and call people like you and me to follow him as Lord. Now, that brings us to the question then, what brought the crowds to Jesus? Did they want to be rescued by him? Did they want to follow? Well, not necessarily. Verse 8 gives us a good idea what they wanted from Jesus when it says they came to him because he heard, or rather they heard, all that he was doing. Now, what's interesting is that the crowds didn't necessarily come for Jesus' teaching. They were drawn to the miracle man who could heal them or could wow them like a Marvel movie. They wanted relief from their pain. Now, let me stop here and say something here. This isn't to say that coming to Jesus with needs or even pain is a problem. He wants us to come to him with our needs. And as we see in the text, he goes on to heal many people in that process. But he didn't heal all of them. And that's because his mission was way bigger than just being a mobile hospital and taking care of mere needs. He came to rescue us from sin and make us his followers. Now, the crowds didn't always respond well to this mission. And we know that from other Gospels, that the crowds uh, would, would uh, listen to Jesus teach, and he would tell them hard truths about following him, and then they would often bolt. I mean, think about it. Palm Sunday. One minute they're saying Hosanna in the highest, the next minute people are hurling insults at him as he's uh, uh, on the cross. You see, this not only reveals people when Jesus calls them to follow, it shows us that Jesus is not interested in being a vending machine of blessings. He's on this mission, and if you follow him, that mission will get challenging. It won't always be easy relief. It includes sometimes suffering. It even is a call to follow him into hard things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor of the German church during the rise of the Nazi regime. He watched the German state church compromise over Christianity and over Nazi policies. So he began preaching against the Nazi regime and calling large portions of the church to repentance. In time, he was arrested and imprisoned. Eventually, Bonhoeffer was executed by the Nazis for his resistance. But he says an interesting thing in some of his writings, and particularly a seminal book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he said this, especially to a church and a large group of people caught up in the wave of politi uh, political nationalism. He said this, as we embark upon discipleship, we must surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. 
Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end of an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Are you coming to Jesus with a desire for comfort and relief? Are you making that your first priority? Jesus will challenge that. And in self-interest, the the crowds wanted Jesus to give him pain relief, but Jesus challenged that regularly. He wants far more for us and with us that we would deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. So Jesus not only faced the crowds, but as we've seen in chapter 1, he also ran into a far more insidious resistance in the demons. And we see it here again in our text in verse 11. Look at that with me. It said here, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Now, we preached on this whole demonic thing before, but demon possession with unclean spirits was a highly unusual situation, but was real in Jesus' time. And it's where Satan got his hooks into people through a settled life, usually of dark sin. Apparently, as Jesus was working among the huge crowds, Jesus would run into someone struggling with this terrible form of dehumanization from Satan. But when Jesus confronted them, the demons did what they often do. They proclaimed Jesus' name and identity for everyone to hear. Jesus, you're the Son of God is what it says here. Now, you got to think at this point, what's wrong with that? I mean, after all, they're saying he's the Son of God. Isn't that cool? Well, you got to know this is not a profession of faith. This is a little bit of what you would call an undesirable witness. I mean, a demon calling out Jesus' name would be like a notorious person, Harvey Weinstein, at a party calling out your name or my name. Hey, Dean, I want to see you. I'm coming over to see you. And all of you would be going, ah. That's what's going on here. Even worse, when when the demons call out Jesus' name like this, they viewed Christ as a threat. And they were trying to derail God's kingdom through manipulation and through spiritual tradecraft. Let me put it this way. They just wanted Jesus to go away. Now, I've got to ask you today, if you're not a follower of Christ, you're not equal to a demon by any stretch of the imagination. But aren't there times you really want Jesus to just go away? He's an inconvenient truth in your life. Well, that's the thing. Jesus keeps being inconvenient for us. He keeps leaning in. He won't stop until you reckon with who he actually is and was in history. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I would also say, you know, you're not in league with the demons, but aren't there some days that you and I want Jesus to just go away? When things aren't going well in life, when... We are uh, caught up in our own secret sins or worldliness. Sometimes we just want to do our own thing and not have to deal with his lordship. But he won't let us get away with it. Indeed, that's what happens in the text with the demons here. What does Jesus do? He silences the demons in this case, and he expels them, 
trying to restore humanity to the dehumanized person involved. And this is the story of Scripture. When God's enemies challenge him or try to ignore him, he crushes them and gets their attention. Remember how Pharaoh made big plans to crush the Jews and to bring them back into slavery at the edge of the Red Sea? Well, instead, God turned that plan around and he crushed Pharaoh and his army in the process all to draw Pharaoh and Egypt as well and as especially with his own people to the sense that God is the only Lord, the only King. The demons wanted Jesus to go away, but instead he sent them away. And he rescued broken slaves at the same time. So, crowds and demons want things from Jesus in self-interest, but we have a shocker in verse 20. Holy smokes, who would have seen this coming? Look at verse 20 with me. Jesus went home, that is probably to Capernaum at this point, his kind of home base, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. What? Jesus' own family has a problem with him. Jesus becomes so popular that he can't find time to eat along with disciples. Furthermore, his family in Nazareth was probably hearing all kinds of reports of what he was doing and how people were clamoring around him. So how'd they respond? They want to have a talk with him. And talk some sense into them. Now, if we were to jump over to verse 31 of Mark chapter 3, we'd find the second part of this story where they finally show up while Jesus is teaching in a home. And while he's teaching, they show up in order to retrieve him from all the fanfare and talk some sense into the guy. So they call him and say, hey, we want to see Jesus. And, of course, probably the the word had to travel through the, the, the various crowds to get to him. And Jesus has an interesting response to them wanting to try and set him straight. Jesus looks around and he says, who are my mother and brothers? These are my mothers and my brothers sitting with me. And hearing my word and doing the will of the Father. Jesus' family are those who sit with Jesus and do what he says as Lord. Now, these are shocking words from Jesus. And some of you are going, ah, we're family people. We love our family. We're trying to love our family. And Jesus is saying, no, these are my family right here. Now, you got to know he's not disowning his family at this point. He finds ways later on, we know, to care for his mother while he's hanging on the cross. And his own brother, James, ends up being a leader in the Jerusalem church. So, why does he respond this way? Well, the hint is in verse 21. When they said among the, when, when, when the family said among themselves, he's out of his mind. Now, I've studied the Greek here, kind of looked through this a little bit, and there's no way around it. His family thought he was crazy. They thought Jesus was a few bricks short of a load, that someone had blown out his pilot light. Now, that's a shocker. His mother Mary spoke with angels about Jesus before his birth, right? His brother James would go on to write the epistle of James, but he doesn't believe in Jesus at this point. 
This tells us what they want from Jesus. They want to tame him. They wanted Jesus to keep his priorities straight, choosing blood family over spiritual family. They wanted him not to embarrass them by, well, being glorious. (laughs) They wanted to put him in his place. How about you? How are you trying to tame Jesus in your life? when he feels a little out of control, like "Mm, being associated with him could be a little risky for us right now. But here's the thing. Jesus will not be tamed. He is the unmanageable deity. And every time you and I try to figure out how to, or predict how he will act, he goes a very different way. And that's because he's the Lord, not us. He won't be managed because he's focused on taming us. Now, the good news for you and I is he doesn't play silly games like his family, frankly, was. You don't want a God who plays games or, even worse, you don't want a God you can control. You want a Lord so big he can overcome anything, even your own resistance to him as Lord. You know, I've been following Jesus for 40 years this year, and I've pastored three churches. I've planted two churches. I've tried all kinds of things in ministry. And through the years, I have to tell you, I've had all kinds of wonderful plans for God and how he can address my ministry. (laughs) In my last church plant, I had a brilliant idea. I thought we could start some kind of sports ministry. And all I would do is get people together, get them excited, and boom, it would happen. So I had this big meeting in my house. We talked about doing things in the community, different ways we could do uh, outreach and evangelism through sports. And remember, we were a bigger, uh, you don't know this probably, but it was a bigger church, like two or 300 people even in the early years. And it was exciting. But what was really interesting is it went over like a lead balloon. For years, I would try to get some kind of sports outreach going in Union County, and it just would not happen. And that's because God had other plans. He was reminding me that he's the Lord of the church, not me. Every time Jesus goes a different way than you expect, he is at least teaching you and me that he's Lord, not us. And at the most, he is trying to reveal something new about himself that we just didn't see before. And that's the problem with the crowds, with the demons, and with Jesus' family at this point. They didn't see Jesus for who he was as the Son of God. They saw him for who they wanted him to be. What about you? What do you see in Jesus? What do you want him to be? Versus who he actually is, is the great and transcendent king and the Lord who moves close. Does he keep interrupting your false understanding of him? That's good. That means he loves you. Jesus just keeps interrupting uh, our lives as little reminders that he's the Lord. He's not doing it to be snarky, just so we're clear. 
But he's wanting to move us from misunderstanding to understanding, from blindness to seeing him and following him in his mission. Now, tucked away in our text is something that moves away from what people want from Jesus to what he wants from us. In verse 13, Jesus moves away from the crowds and reveals what he's really after in, his, in what he's doing in our world. Look at verse 13 with me in our text. And you might be familiar with this. This is where Jesus calls his apostles. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This, of course, is the call to the 12 apostles. And, and Jesus, no doubt, had a larger group of people who were faithfully following him around. But here he targeted 12 men to be his closest disciples and whom he would train to continue his mission after him. Now, important thing to know about the 12 is that Jesus had already called them to follow. We've seen that with Peter and Andrew and James and John, even a guy named Matthew Levi, uh, who became a, who once was a tax collector in, verse, in chapter 2. Let me put it this way. They were already called to follow Jesus as disciples and to do the will of the Father, just like Christ's family does. But in chapter 3, he give these, gives these 12 a unique role in the church's history. They are apostles, given a unique job in verse 14, to be with him, to preach, and to have authority over demons. These would be the men who would either indirectly or directly influence the writing of Scripture and would go on to tell the world about Christ. Indeed, because they had been with him and they had all seen him in his resurrection, that qualified them to be apostles in particular. There is an also an interesting twist that Jesus would choose 12 here. That number, 12, should ring a bell if you know your Bible history. Uh, that number re reflects the number of tribes in Israel. That means that Christ was forming a new Israel. Uh, and just like the old Israel had the 12 tribes with the 12 patriarchs. And Lord, did he attract a diverse group. Four of them were blue-collar fishermen and small business owners. One of them was a zealot. Let me explain what a zealot is, all right? A zealot is a political activist who would have worked uh, or really would have loved feel the burn or let's make America great again. One of these guys was once a hated tax collector who worked for the Romans, and Jesus chose one, Judas, knowing that Judas would betray him. He even renamed a few of them, you know, James and John, the sons of thunder. I think that's just a, another angle on that is that later on they'd reveal there are actually tons of blunder, just like the rest of the disciples. All of them, though, except for Judas, would die for doing what Jesus trained them to do, talking about him to the world. Don't mess with Jesus doing that. 
Jesus chose to train them, and let me put it this way, to reproduce his life and ministry in them. Indeed, they would go on and do many things that Jesus himself did in the book of Acts, and even while Jesus was training them. In fact, the book of Acts is often called the Acts of the Apostles. Another way you could describe that book is the Acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is the establishment of the apostles got to do with us? Well, now we're getting at what Jesus wants. Jesus wants to invest himself in people like us so we will invest our lives in others for his purposes who would invest their lives in others for their purposes, for his purposes. Guys, this is true discipleship. And let me explain what I mean by true discipleship. Jesus isn't just about us getting gospel teaching and consuming it so that we are about consumption. He wants us to take it, put it into practice, and give it away in love to other people. True biblical discipleship is not sitting around and getting more good teaching. True discipleship is getting gospel teaching and then investing in others. This is a very different way of leadership where you think generationally rather than just in self-interest today. Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, came up with something you may have heard of, the hierarchy of needs. In that hierarchy, he came up with some basic things that we all need, food and drink at its very, ba uh, very basic level, good health, relationships. But do you know what the pinnacle of the hierarchy of needs for Abraham Maslow was? Self-actualization. It's becoming the best me possible. Where have you heard that? If you put self-actualization with leadership, you know what it leads to? Walking all over people in self-interest the crowds, the demons, and for a moment, Jesus' own family were all about self-actualization even while they were walking all over Jesus. But Jesus will have none of that. He is the sovereign king. And you know what Jesus is about? He's about other actualization. He's about giving himself away to people who are ready to follow him and do the will of the Father. I mean, Jesus gave himself away all the way to the cross in order to make disciples and to make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples for generations to come. In the coming year, we, here at South Charlotte, hope to ramp up some of this kind of discipleship work within the church. But I've got a challenge for those who have been following Christ for many years. You need the gospel every day. You need it more than you think. I need it more than I think. We should keep hungering for the gospel, but you don't need more information. Follow Jesus and be about other actualization so they can be about other actualization. Think generationally about the kingdom, not merely in self-interest with the gospel. In other words, find young people, young Christians, and invest your life in them. 
That's what discipleship in Christ's kingdom is all about. And youth who are here, you're not off the hook. As Christ gets a hold of you, you're to invest yourself in the next generation of kids that are right behind you, serving them and leading them to Jesus. Let me put it this way. We're all to keep moving from a life of merely what do I want from Jesus to move to a life of listening to what Jesus wants from you. Move your life from my will be done to thy will be done in investing in the next generation. Give yourself away. I've told this story before, but back in my senior, high, senior year of high school, uh, I worked at a young life camp in Colorado called Frontier Ranch. I worked for the summer. I worked with a team of guys on an outdoor crew building this big log cabin that would hold the horses. But at night, I worked on the pit crew washing dishes. And I worked two jobs while everybody else kind of worked one job. And I just loved serving and being a part of the team and doing this thing for a summer. It was really cool. At the end of my time there, uh, I had a review with our work crew boss, and he sat me down, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Dean, I wish I had a million of you. I mean, you've given of yourself sacrificially. You work so hard, but there's one thing, one thing you're really missing. He said, you didn't give yourself away in Christ to us. We knew your work. We didn't know you. To this day, I ask myself, am I giving myself away for Christ in his name? Don't miss this. Jesus didn't die for you so you could merely come to him with your wants. He gave himself away at the cross so you might give yourself away for generations to come. So let me ask you, what does Jesus want from you right now? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you in the power of the Spirit, and we want to wrestle with this text that confronts us with what we want and then what you want. And Lord, a lot of us come here today with things on our hearts, and it feels big to us. I mean, even I have those things. And you care about that, and you want to attend to that with the gospel and move us toward yourself. But don't let us miss the bigger picture, Lord of giving our lives away, even in our learning and our hardship, even in the things where we feel vulnerable. Give us grace as a body to invest our lives in each other and the next generation. We need you today, Lord. Hear our prayers in Christ's name. Amen.